The series is called What God Cannot Do. Uh, I've been a little hesitant to even call it that because um, I don't want to be blasphemous in any way or take away from the glory of God. It doesn't take away from the glory of God. Actually, what God cannot do is a great comfort to us, and that's what I hope to show you today. Uh, For instance, we're going to talk about sleep today once we get done with the introduction. God cannot sleep. Uh, You should be thankful that God cannot sleep. Can you imagine if God, who doesn't have eyes in in reality, closed his eyes and knocked himself out for eight hours and did not know what was going on in the world, did not know what was going on anywhere? I mean, you and I sleep, right? And hopefully we get eight hours of sleep. Um, Okay. Most of you don't get eight hours of sleep, I know, especially if you're raising little children. You just don't, you know. But God is merciful to us. But you think about it, when you're sleeping, that's when you're in the most vulnerable position of all. Okay? You're down, you're unaware of what's going on around you, or maybe you're in a strange environment or a dangerous environment even. Or you sense some kind of unease and you, quote unquote, sleep with one eye open. Okay, well you really can't do that. You can't sleep with one eye open, but you can sleep with vigilance, and it's not going to be a good restful night of sleep when you do that. God made us so that we need sleep. We have to do that, and almost all of his creatures do. All of his physical creatures do. So we're going to talk about sleep, but I want to give an, and that's an easy one. That's going to be a pretty easy one, to tell you the truth. And so I want to give an extended introduction, and then we'll go to the scriptures there. Let me just tell you where we're going. Uh, as I had the, the month off, um, I took the time to, to outline where we were going to go in this particular uh, series. And uh, today it's sleep, as I said. And, uh, but think about that. Christ, as a man, could sleep. Christ, as a man, did sleep. And there were times that, um, you know, he went without sleep to do his father's work. There were times he'd get up really early and go out to pray. But uh, think about the time he was in a boat in the storm. Okay, So here's this massive storm come up. These experienced fishermen, these guys that are experienced in, in the ways of um, the lake there, which is almost like a sea to us, you know, were, were terrified. And they wake him up and say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And he gets up, and he doesn't really pray. What he does is he commands the storm to be silent. And it was. Boom. Smooth like glass. And now they were terrified of something else. Okay? They were terrified of the storm before, but now they say, who is this that can command the the storm to stop? Okay? So that's an illustration of what we're talking about uh, when we're talking about God cannot sleep. Okay? Second of all, we're going to study God cannot learn. And uh, he can't teach God anything, and he can't learn. We'll be studying that. But it's interesting. In, in the book of 1 Samuel, we read that uh, Samuel increased in, in wisdom and, and uh, in favor with God and man as he grew up in the, in the tabernacle area. And following that same kind of idea, Luke tells us in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So these are the kind of things we're going to, to explore a little bit as, as we go through here. You know? 
And then a companion trait to God can't learn is God can't be surprised. God can't be surprised, but the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes marveled. What did he marvel at? Who knows? Well, I think I heard unbelief. Oh, you marvel at faith. Oh, you did marvel at faith. You're right. That wasn't what I was thinking of, but you are exactly right. I've not, not found such great faith in all of Israel, he dared to say. But more, more often, he marveled at their unbelief. You know, ah, you know. Okay. God can't change his mind. Okay. And there are many scriptures that we'll look at, especially in the Old Testament, that make it seem like he can. I'm reading in Jeremiah right now in my private devotions, and it strikes me how often God talks in such a way uh, that uh, we would think that he could change his mind. But in fact, God can't change. And that'll be a companion uh, to the idea that God can't change his mind. Um, and, And just think about that one just very simply. Very simply, if you think about it. If God could change, what would he change? Would he become better? All of a sudden, he's now improved. The, the, the absolute perfection has now gotten even better. What if he could change for the worse? Uh, okay. God cannot change. That should give us comfort, too. So any kind of change would, would uh, mean that he was changing for the better or changing for the worse. Um, another one that we'll study is God can't be seen. And uh, we sing the hymn in 35, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Okay, Invisible. Yet we see, some have counted as much as 50 Old Testament incidences where God reveals himself in a theophany or a Christophany. You know, which is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, although, I will just say, some, we'll get into this, but some theologians would argue that the angel of the Lord isn't always a theophany, but we'll try to look into that a little bit. Okay. And then, God cannot bear to look. Okay. Habakkuk uh, 1.13 says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. Okay. So we'll explore that. The next three are related to each other, but we'll probably take them one by one. Um, I figure the series might be 12 to 14 uh, lessons here as we go through it. God can't be lonely. You, you ask people, just ask some of your Christian friends, why did God create me, man? And a lot of times they'll say, well, he was kind of lonely, and so he decided that oh, God, God can't be lonely, and God cannot suffer. Okay, that's another doctrine that's been established in the, the Christian church. And um, God cannot die. Kind of funny, you know, it was very popular in the 70s to say God is dead, you know. And then that's kind of moved ahead. They didn't mean that, that God, you know, keeled over and died. What they meant is the whole idea of God is no longer necessary. We don't need an idea of God. That was really what was behind the God cannot die. But he can't be lonely, he can't suffer, and he can't die. But then I want you to think about Jesus on the cross, who suffered and died alone. Okay? So these are the things that we'll be talking about. Uh, and of course, um, do realize that dying does not uh, 
the Lord Jesus Christ dying did not mean he went out of existence. Okay? We know that he didn't go out of existence. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You know? God can't be tempted. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. God cannot be tempted. God cannot lie. That's one that uh, some people have already said as uh, they were contemplating the series and said, well, you know, I know one, God can't lie. Very, very true. But it might be a little more difficult than we think when we actually get there. And God cannot disown himself. Okay, so, so basically that's where we're going to go here. And we might even find a few more to focus on a few more as we go along here. What we are dealing with is what theologians call theology proper. Theology proper, and here's just one definition of that. Uh, theology proper is the subdiscipline of systematic theology which deals specifically with the being, attributes, and works of God. In Christian theology and within the Trinitarian setting, this includes paterology, the study of God the Father. Okay, and of course... It, it can be broader than that. But theology proper, study of God. So today we start a series that's going to be difficult because there are theological and even philosophical landmines all over the place that people fall into. And it's not my intention to be controversial. Uh, however, the subject matter is profound because we're going to study the nature of God. Usually when we study the nature of God, uh, we study his attributes. And that's fine. As finite creatures, we have to do things like that. Okay? We have to kind of pick things apart and look at it because we're finite. That's the way we learn. That's the way we grow. That's the way we understand. However, the truth of the matter is, uh, God doesn't have parts like that. Because again, you ask people, what's God's greatest attribute? What, what, do you, what do people usually say when you say, what's God's greatest attribute? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, I heard two, and you might get both answers, holiness and love, okay? But the truth of the matter is, God doesn't have a greatest attribute, because God is. Okay? He's simple. He's one. Simple sounds like an insult in our culture, okay? You say God is simple, and, and we talk about being simple-minded, or, or kids, or, yeah, okay. That's not what it means theologically. It means that He's not made of parts. And you and I are made of parts. And even if we break it down to the, the simplest level for us, we're still made of parts, body and soul. So, you know, such is not the case for God. You know, so I would expect that in the series, I'll probably trip over a few theological landmines myself as much as I want to avoid them. And I will not be offended if you call me on it. I will not be offended at that. And I ask the same for you. That uh, if you say something that needs correction, I pray that you won't take it personally and that you won't be upset. And even if you happen to disagree with the correction that's made, uh, we can always talk about it later or you can think about it more. You know. And so often we learn the most. In my own life I found that the things I remember the best the things that I've learned, maybe the deepest, are when I was wrong about something and then corrected. You know, that, that, that's a very good thing. So, so really, please, uh, as we talk about something as infinite as this subject, uh, we will make mistakes as those that are finite. 
But we'll stay with the scriptures and what the scriptures have to say. Michael Horton, in his systematic theology for pilgrims along the way, says this, quote, Christian orthodoxy has been wary of speculation concerning God's inner essence, focusing instead on God's characteristics as they've been revealed to us by God in his works, especially in scripture, through the unfolding economy of the covenant of grace. I think that's true. And then he goes on and quotes Calvin. Calvin, and this is Horton quoting Calvin, quote, as God's essence is hidden and incomprehensible, his name just means his character, so far as he's been pleased to make it known to us. And so I'll be often bringing up what's called the, the creature-creator or the creator-creature distinction. Because God is, and then everything else is what God made. So there's God, and then there's everything else. Okay. And that helps us to get away from the idea that is all too common, and we fall into it too, that God is just like us, except he's bigger and stronger and more powerful and more like Superman. Because you know, Superman is the world's God, uh, uh, part of the world's God figure you know, with a little G. You know. And so it's easy for us to, to do that. It's hard for us to to think otherwise. Okay. So we'll have to understand oftentimes that when God talks to us, he talks to us in baby talk. He has to, because it's the infinite communicating with the finite. You know. So uh, this really isn't going to be a, a study on, on God without passions or God without parts. But if it's something that you'd like to study, we still have in the book room this excellent book that would really, really help you. It's called A Primer, but um, it, it's pretty full and I think very helpful. God Without Passion. So uh, you can pick that up in the book room if you'd like. And another book room advertisement. Um, the Psalms in, in meter, common meter, have, have come in too. And they're available in the book room for $5, like we said. Did you notice the hymn that we sang today? And now I'm finding myself counting out... Um, Syllables. <laughs> that was long meter. It was eight, 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 eight. You know. So there you go. Anyway, comfort, comfort in the fact of our unchangeable God and unchanging God. So here we go. We're going to talk about sleep. Sleep is our first subject. Think what it would be like if, uh, really, just for even a few moments, God lost control of everything, went into an unconscious state was no longer ruling and reigning the universe. Uh, he will do that again when he wakes up from his slumber. You know, can you imagine such a thing? You know? Well, God doesn't sleep. That should give us great comfort. We lie down, we close our eyes, and that's when we're the most vulnerable. Um, if you've been in the military, which I thank the Lord that I haven't, but okay, because I was, would have been in during the Vietnam War. That's pretty rough. You know, but, um, you know, your life depends on the sentry that's standing guard, the watchman that's standing guard. You can sleep because there's somebody that's going to be watching. If the enemy attacks, uh, he's going to wake you up and you've got to be ready at a moment's notice uh, to spring into action. That probably doesn't lend to a lot of deep 
a comforting sleep. Does it, Daniel? You, uh, it doesn't, doesn't, especially on, out, you're out there, man, in the battlefield, you know. But you trust, you have to trust, and, and you're going to fall asleep eventually. You'll collapse if you don't sleep. Eventually, you'll just go down. You have to. But God doesn't sleep. We lie down, we close our eyes. We're the most vulnerable. God never does. That takes us to our very first um, psalm here, Psalm 3. You got that. Oh, wait for the runner to come. He'll help you here. Oh. I still wouldn't hear you on tape. <laughs> psalm 3. Oh, Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Okay, now let's talk about the background of that particular scripture. Psalm 3. As best as we know, it's a psalm that David wrote during one of the most horrific and and terrifying times of his life. He was chased around by Saul a lot, and that was horrific, and that was terrible. But the background, as best as we know of this one, is when his son Absalom usurped the throne and then attempted to kill his father. Absalom very much wanted to kill David. David wanted to make sure that Absalom didn't die, you know. Well, both of them were frustrated in their desires because Absalom did not kill David and Absalom did die because of his rebellion. Okay, And and that was a great grief to David. So not only was David uh, grieving because now he was running in exile, you know, and he took off because he didn't want to have a warfare, you know. And God in his providence works in in strange ways, doesn't he? Because uh, God caused... um, David's counselors to be um, befuddled, you know. Here comes the great counselor Ahithophel, and he says, we've got to go after David. Now is our chance. He's running. We can catch him from behind and smite him down to the ground, and he'll be gone, and you'll be the king. But in God's providence, you know, Absalom says, well, that sounds good. Let's get another piece of advice here. And God and David had sent Hushai, who was still loyal to David, to be a counselor, a very respected man. Ahithophel was probably more respected uh, amongst the people, but Hushai was very respected too. And so he said, oh, that's terrible advice. David's like a, you know, like a cornered, caged animal now. You go after him, he's going to fight you with his men with all the power that he has. What you need to do is gather the largest army you can. And then we'll go out and we'll find him in the wilderness. We'll overtake him and we'll kill David and we'll kill the men that are loyal to him. And you'll be established on the throne. And isn't it something? 
that Absalom says, that's good advice. <laughs> that's what we're going to do. He appealed to Hushai's pride. Hushai wanted that huge army to follow him. But notice what David says, you know, I'll not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me. Verse 6, um, and uh, verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. It's really quite a remarkable psalm when you come down to understanding the context around it and all that it has. Of course, David had many, many such uh, terrible encounters during the course of his life. You can think of the times that, uh, um, I'm thinking if we'll get, we might get to one that uh, we'll try to. Okay. Uh, Jeff, why don't you read Psalm 4.8? If you want to turn there, turn to Psalm 4.8. And that's the next one we'll look at. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Now there's a good verse to memorize. It's a good verse to teach your kids. You know? uh, kids are almost always afraid of the dark. Now, when you come right down to it, you know, um, the dark is no different than, than the light. Like you come into a building like this, it can get real dark, especially at night. You know? But um, we're just naturally uh, afraid of the dark because we can't see. We don't exactly know what's going on. Who knows what there is? Um, I've, I've heard people say, well, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of what's in the dark. You know, okay, well, fine. That, that's, that's fine, too. But you notice here, you know, I'll both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And that's really what we need to contemplate, be we children or adults, that we can sleep and we can rest because we're in God's hand. His providence is watching over us. We're asleep, but he's awake. And uh, nothing's going to befall us outside of his providence. And, and that's a, a great blessing to us, you know. So, you know, uh, that should give us some, some comfort there. Um, let's go to the, the next part we want to look at here. Psalm 121. You can all turn there. We have a reader for Psalm 121. Awesome. Psalm 121. A song of ascents. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Okay, that's Psalm 121. As you look at that psalm, you can see the way that it's constructed. Uh, where does my help come from? Where should my trust be? Where can I rely? Okay. Well, the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that is really just repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. If there's anything that, that you read as you read the Old Testament, over and over and over again, it, it talks about the gods of the nations. But our God is the one who made the heaven and the earth. Okay, just emphasized with exclamation points all over the place and, and real importance. So talks about some of the things that uh, the Lord helps us with. 
And the main thing is its preservation. Verse 8, verse 7 and 8, the Lord shall preserve you from evil, or keep you from evil. The Lord shall preserve or keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. That should comfort our heart. That should be something that uh, strengthens us, you know, and keeps us from undue fear. There's not necessarily anything wrong with being afraid. Uh, you know, if you're never afraid of anything, that you're probably not being very wise, you know. Sometimes you have to count the cost, though, you know. You have to count the cost, and that doesn't mean that you won't, uh, you know, understand that the cost can be great, you know. But just to be fearful, trusting in the Lord is the answer. And one of the reasons, and one of the things that um, he says in verse 3, he'll not allow your foot to be moved or your foot to slip, you know. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Okay. So since God's watching over you, you have nothing to fear because you're in his hand. Now, uh, let's have you to go on with Psalm 127, too. And read that psalm to us. A Very psalm, familiar psalm. Oh, mm-hmm. Sorry, 127. 127. A song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who built it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Amen. It's a great passage. It's one that, um, well, some of you know this because it's happened for you. Uh, When I visit someone that's just had a newborn baby, always read Psalm 127. Because it's just a, a wonderful passage to contemplate as being parents and and parents of newborns, and, and what the Lord is doing, and, the, and that child is a blessing. You know, I, I don't want to just get off on a rabbit trail here, but uh, I just have to say this. What a, a horrible culture it is that doesn't value children. I mean, seriously, it's just unbelievable. It is the utmost of wickedness and vile. That's just the truth of the matter. And we live in a culture where many do not value children. And all you're going to have to do, that's what I'll say about that, all you have to do is uh, look at some political ads. And some people are fighting for the ability to kill unborn babies. They're not just wanting to do it. They want to shout it from the housetops and say, vote for me because that's what I want to do. I want to make sure you can do that. You have freedom. You have rights. You can do this. We should be able to see the wickedness and the evil that that all entails. Well, um, this is, children are a blessing, and children are, are wonderful, and we're glad for them. And uh, behold, children are heritage from the Lord. But um, look at verse 2. That's where I wanted to center for a minute, because this has to do with sleep. Whenever I read this uh, at, you know, 
in, at someone's house or in the hospital. Uh, it always strikes me as a little out of context, although it's not. You know, it's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. And I usually have to sit up and say, well, you're going to lose a lot of sleep here over, over the next couple of years, you know. But uh, the Lord is the one who, who gives sleep. But, but really, that's, that's what it's talking about. Um, there's different translations here uh, that, that help us understand this a little bit more. It's vain for you to rise up early, go, to, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Uh, I'm certainly not a Hebrew expert, but anxious toil seems to be a, a very good translation of, of that um, to eat the bread of sorrows. Uh, that's from the ESV, and many newer translations have followed that uh, from the RSV. And then the Common English Bible, which I don't know much about except it's one of the sources I have, um, says, It is pointless that you get up early and stay up late, eating the bread of hard labor, because God gives sleep to those he loves. So I really think uh, that does capture the sense of what's being said there, that uh, we can really just do ourselves in with work. Just work, 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 work. Do ourselves in. Okay, that, that baby's going to need your attention, and so you do need to, to give that baby your attention, of course. But, um, you know, uh, we were made to work, and we were made to rest. And I won't go into what rest means. Um, Pastor Ken's done that before and has talked about rest and, and all that it means. And it doesn't just mean take a nap or sleep. Okay, it's more than that. But it is also a blessing that God gives us sleep. You ever had something that worried you so much it kept you awake? And it was something that just didn't get resolved and it just kept going and going and going and you find your nerves getting frayed. You find yourself just having all kinds of problems, maybe even physical problems begin to manifest themselves, you know. I, I like to say, and I, I believe this is true, the way that we're made, the way God made us, uh, sleep is the very best medicine you can have. You know, just asking God for sleep. It, that's going to be a curative of so many things, you know. And it's also, on a related note, why God gives children to younger people. Because <laughs> they can deal with it. <laughs> you know, they can deal with it easier than some of us that are a little riper in age. You know, so that's good. Strength of youth. You know. Well, we can teach that to our children, even a simple lesson. Well, well let, me, let me just read Proverbs 3.24, because I didn't get a reader for that. Proverbs 3.24 says, When you lie down, you'll not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your, sweep, your sleep will be sweet. A little bit of a tongue twister there. When you lie down, you'll not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Proverbs 3, 24. That's something to teach our children. Uh, they should know that God watches over them, that God uh, sees them. And, uh, you know, you need not fear. You know, God's watching over you. Mommy and daddy are protecting you. But God is protecting you. And all of us by his great power. So, you know, um, there's more we can say about that. But I do want to, to finish here. Okay. Um, reader number three. Over here. Um, 1 Samuel 26, 
verses 4 through 12. You all can turn there while Linda reads that to us. 1 Samuel 26, verses 4 through 12. David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul was lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed? And be without guilt. And David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, for his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside David's head, Saul's head, and they went away, but no one saw or knew it. Nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Whoa. Okay. Sleep's a wonderful thing. But in God's providence, he can actually close our eyes to the truth. And in reprobation, that's part of what happens. Your eyes are closed to the truth. The lost, without the knowledge of God. Uh, They don't see like they should see. They don't understand like they should understand. Do you just notice here that uh, the Lord had brought a deep sleep on them? It was the Lord's doing. So Saul closed his eyes, (coughs) feeling quite secure, surrounded by his men, but they were all asleep. Now, in God's providence, this happened twice that uh, this, this time was sleep, um, David takes something from Saul to prove that he's been there. You know? And the rest of the chapter is really all about that. It's all about what, what had happened. And, and you would think that, that Saul would be wise enough now to say, you know, I, I better not chase this guy anymore. Saul knew, uh, in an intellectual level, he knew that David was the Lord's anointed, and he knew that David would be the next king. He even tells his son Jonathan, who he wanted to be the next king, that David would be the next king. He even tells him that, you know. But he was doing everything he could to keep it from happening. How foolish is it for a man to fight against God? God can put you to sleep, you know. He can cause you to now not have the, the wonderful, restful blessing of sleep, but instead a spirit of slumber that makes you fall, uh, that becomes your undoing. That's God's providence too. A deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. David could have easily killed Saul. David could have easily had Abishai kill Saul. Instead, David stops him. He says, no, we're not going to put out a hand for the Lord's anointed. 
Because this is going to befall one way or the other. He's either going to die of old age or he's going to die in battle. He's going to die some way because God had decreed his death. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. He's going to leave that up to the Lord. Again, very, very wise. Probably something that, unless the Lord had um, touched our hearts, probably would not have done to the one that's chasing us and wants our blood. You know. But that's the way that God worked in David's heart and such like that. Now, I don't think I gave, okay. I would make one more. I think we have time for one more. And so who wants to be a reader? I don't think I gave out Esther. Esther verses 6, 1 through 6. Who wants to read that one? Esther 6. And I'll even give you a few moments to find it. Don't worry. Because <laughs> I want to say one more thing. Oh, don't, don't say I never gave you a chance. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to read it then. Oh, Mike, you got it. Esther 6, 1 through 6. While you're turning there, while others are turning there, let me just say this. Um, the, the account that we just read ends in verse um, 25 of chapter 26. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still will prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. But the next verse tells us that David was just a man, like we are. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. So David did what we often do. You know, instead of trusting, makes his own way of escape doesn't work out very well for him and he has to come to his senses and come back you know but um not so to speak here and um at any rate david could have got himself in some massive trouble had he had god not intervened you know and found uh, david even fighting against uh, the people of god because of the choices that he made you know and i don't think he'd be the king of israel uh, in normal circumstances if he had become a warrior against Israel. Okay, story of Esther. We're going to be quick on this, but go ahead and read verses 1 through 6. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they sought to lay hands on the king Asarius. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. And the king's servants said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king desire to honor more than me? Thank you for reading verse 7, because we needed that too. Okay, oh. good. Or maybe you didn't. <laughs> I'll 
Read verse 7 in my, yeah, we needed that. You know. King. We did. For the, oh, I, I read through 6. Oh, got a different translation. Mine, mine, you have to have verse 7. Now okay. Haman thought in his heart, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Okay, I'll yeah. read 7 and 8 in mine. I think that would catch you. Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse in which the king had ridden, and on whose head a royal crown had been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback to the city square, and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. So Haman's getting himself all ready for that, isn't he? He said, ah, this is what's going to happen to me. And the king says, do that for Mordecai. And you're going to walk in front of him while everybody bows to Mordecai. You know, so. Yeah, that's, that's the story of Esther. Esther is an interesting book uh, because in, uh, it's about the providence of God, providence of God in keeping uh, uh, the king awake, providence of God that the deeds of Mordecai and the plot that he uncovered has been written down and put in the annals, providence of God that uh, nothing was ever done for Mordecai. He just was, uh, you know, he, he did a heroic deed that goes, uh, really, um, without any kind of reward at all. He's got a mortal enemy that wants to kill him, has built a huge gallows so that he can do that. And it all turns around. The story of God's providence is the story of Esther. And, of course, that's the beginning of the end for Haman. And, um, and even Haman's wife realizes that and says, well, you're done for now, basically. This, this is it. It's, it's all turned against you. So great, great book, the book of Esther there. I'll just do one more. We won't read it, but it's a famous account. You know what it is. Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal. And um, it's found in 1 Kings 18. And, um, and so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them, the, the prophets of Baal. Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. That's a mockery, you know. And of course, you know how Elijah turned out. So we need sleep. To go without sleep too long is a form, well, some, some people use that as a torture. They'll torture their captives or prisoners by not allowing them to go to sleep. As soon as sleep comes upon them, they'll wake them up, you know. And you can literally die by a lack of sleep, literally. But God is spirit. He doesn't need to sleep. And you should be comforted that God never sleeps. He never loses control, not for a microsecond. Amen. Well, may the Lord bless. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. And then we have about 10 minutes to be ready for our next service to get our kids, get ourselves settled in. Lord, we thank you as we look at things a little differently, take a different slant on things than we usually would, to talk about the things that you will not do, talk about the things that you cannot do because of who you are. And Lord, we see a, a big distinction between ourselves as the creature and you as the great creator. Lord, we thank you that all these things we are talking about are true of you. We thank you that you never sleep Never for a moment do you lose control of this vast universe, be it the physical universe that we see or the spiritual domain that we do not see. Never do you allow yourself 
to lose control. We thank you for that, Father. Who is like you? And the answer, of course, is no one. So, Lord, may you bless this next service. Bless Pastor Ken as he brings the word to us. May Jesus Christ receive for himself the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.